there, there are all sorts of different training zone models out there. They should really be based fundamentally on what physiological response you're going to get. But also, one of the things about setting these training zones is if all the users have to understand what the purpose is of exercising at a in a particular zone for a particular day for a particular reason. So being an athlete and doing this training is really, really hard. And giving them a, a purpose, that's perhaps one of the, the good things about these zones is it, it does at least say, oh, that's why I'm doing this today. That's why I'm putting myself through this today, because tomorrow I'm going to be better off for it. Hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. This week's guest is Dr. Mark Burnley. Mark is an exercise physiologist by trade, currently an academic at Loughborough University, having previously been at Brighton, Aberystwyth, Kent and Wolverhampton. And Mark's background is in oxygen uptake kinetics, first and foremost, having undertaken much of the pioneering work on priming, which I've used extensively in my work with athletes. And much of Mark's work has also centered around the concept of critical power or critical velocity and the physiological landmarks that distinguish different exercise intensities, essentially exploring ways in which we can distinguish the way our body responds differently in different domains of exercise. And this is relevant because these landmarks offer us some logic to how we might go about setting training zones and that is what we get into in this discussion. We delve into what the key landmarks are, what happens when you exercise in, below or above different landmarks, and we explore the strengths, mistakes and pitfalls of different types of zone structures that you might use with an athlete. We debate using laboratory, field-based measures, whether you should be precise or use margins or prescriptions, whether to use heart rate, power, speed or breathing as some of the ways to regulate exercise intensity. As you can imagine, the discussion goes in all different directions. And what we've tried to do is define each concept as we go, just in case you're not familiar with the various terms. But rest assured, you're in safe hands with Mark. His keen intellect, exacting precision, combined with an eye for the applied practical implications of this topic, are all delivered with the highest level of clarity. Let's get into the conversation. All right, well, welcome to the podcast, Mark. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, all good. Keeping well. Yeah. Um, 
Look, it's great to to have you on. It's been long overdue. Uh, I'd really love to get into discussing training zones, exercise intensity domains with you, uh, take a bit of a deep dive there, discuss some of the underpinning physiology, uh, some of the landmarks and make help people make sense of, you know, why zones might be categorized or might be different. Um, But really, most of all, I'd like to talk about using training intensity zones um, effectively for training. Um, yep. if, if that's okay with you, how's that yeah, sound? That's fine. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, you know, it's 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 great because your work has always been a fertile ground for us as applied scientists to mine. And mm. um, so, as a user of your your work, it would be great to get your kind of fundamental take, but open that up into exploring implementation of those ideas and the concepts yep. that you actually research. Yeah. Um, and. Training zones, I suppose we should probably do a little bit of, um, I suppose, admin at the start here in that it largely we're going to be talking about endurance training. So yeah. um, in our little pre-chat there, you hinted to what might come next for you around some sort of higher intensity work. So that'd be mm-hmm. interesting to maybe to cover that. Yeah. Um, maybe if we categorize this a little bit so we focus our attention on the use of training zones for athletes, um, of which we can we can be thinking about those that do it for a living and those that are really keen on developing their athletic performance. Mm. So that, that might in itself mean, look, if you're doing a part run and you're enjoying your endurance training, but you're not necessarily that, that bothered on scratching away at the next level of, of endurance performance, then that's okay too. And we might need to do some terms. Um, yeah. I'm just conscious that maybe as we go through this, it would be useful for people just to get at least a definition mm. here and there. But uh, but equally, it yeah. might be that we have to have a glossary of terms appendix, append as an appendix to the. To yeah, the I mean, it could be that three hours into this podcast, we're talking about Zone Seventy Eight, and then it's kind of it's one of those things. That, yes, granular. Yeah. Let's get granular. Yeah, it's. <laughs> Um, it can be a bit of a minefield, especially for those that, that don't really look into this very often. So um, if we wanted to start with kind of a, a typical three zone training model or training zone model, um, that's really the one that's developed most closely to the underlying physiology. Um, and then there are five zones, seven zone models, those sorts of things. I don't have a philosophical problem with those, provided that they ultimately map onto the physiology itself, so that you need to be clear about why a zone is where it is and what it's trying to do and what you're trying to achieve with it. Um, And that has to be grounded in the underlying physiological responses. So in terms of terms and definitions, if you read the physiological literature, there's sort of two camps, really, in terms of how you characterize intensity. If you're looking at it in terms of health and exercise, you'll hear terms like moderate and vigorous in terms of physical activity. Now, we won't cover that today because that's about uh, metabolic equivalence and just being doing enough physical activity for health and accumulation of uh, exercise there that's not what we're really talking about 
The other schema that you have come across, perhaps, is the notion of exercise intensity domains and thresholds and anchoring yeah. certain intensities based upon the underlying physiological response. And there we have terms like moderate, heavy, severe, extreme. And because we're physiologists, we have other names for the same thing. So some physiologists will call what I call the severe domain, they'll call it the very heavy domain. Um, but we all understand where those two terms are in terms of the exercise intensity spectrum. So to be as clear as possible, the moderate intensity domain extends all the way from rest up to the first lactate threshold or the point at which lactate having been at rest or close to rest starts to rise in the blood so that's your moderate intensity domain and the important thing about that domain is that you can achieve a steady state relatively quickly so after two to three minutes you will achieve a steady state in vo2 your heart rate will be reasonably steady state in thermal neutral conditions although it may drift with time but in the first 10 to 15 minutes, you'll reach a stable heart rate, you reach a stable VO2 and a stable blood lactate. So if you're measuring blood lactate, it should only transiently rise or not rise at all and then stay pretty much at resting levels. And you can continue that exercise for many hours. So that's the sort of domain in which you would do your ultra distance running, those sorts of, uh, those sorts of events. Then you cross that lactate threshold you enter the heavy domain and the heavy domain extends from the first lactate threshold up to what we would call the maximal steady state and there's various ways of measuring that maximal steady state which is still in the literature and in on twitter in twitter in the twitterverse still heavily contested but the way i would look at it is you've got really two broad measurements that are accepted as measurements of the maximal steady state one of those is the maximal lactate steady state where you do 30 minute runs of various intensities and you measure the blood lactate response over those 30 minutes if you see a rise in blood lactate of more than one millimole per liter over the last 20 minutes of that then you're in the non-steady state so below that that would be your maximal lactate steady state that's the boundary between heavy and severe exercise that's the top end of the heavy domain the other way of doing it is to characterize the severe intensity power duration relationship and then you're characterizing the critical power and the critical power the asymptote of that relationship the bit the bit where it no longer carries on declining that is the boundary between heavy and severe exercise so you've got lactate threshold up to the maximal steady state however you choose to measure it the cyclists listening to this will also know about functional threshold power. You may, may also have heard of the second lactate threshold or the lactate turn point. All of these things are essentially trying to characterize the top end of the heavy domain or the bottom end of the severe domain, whichever way you want to look at it. And then you enter the severe domain. And the difference between the heavy and the severe domain, the heavy domain, you get a delayed steady state. So you have the same initial VO2 response or approximately the same initial VO2 response. But then after that, VO2 rises for another 10 to 15 minutes and then stabilizes. And it will stabilize usually at around somewhere between 70 and 80% VO2 max, something like that. Um, and I'm being very vague about that because percent VO2 max doesn't really mean much when you're working with exercise intensity domains and VO2 is always changing. But you can achieve a delayed steady state. 
that steady state is elevated. That is to say, the VO2 is higher than you would expect it to be if this slow component, which is the thing that develops, didn't happen. The other thing you'll see is that lactate is elevated above rest, but it stabilizes. So that's another characteristic feature of the heavy domain. And all the other metabolic things we can measure should also achieve a steady state or quasi-steady state in the heavy domain, but everything's elevated. The issue with that, of course, is that you've got a higher oxygen cost than you would normally have, assuming there was no slow component there. That's going to draw down your energy reserves faster. That's perhaps one of the reasons why marathon running is so well correlated to the first lactate threshold, because you don't want a whacking great slow component during your marathon run, because you're going to run out of glycogen sooner than you otherwise would have done. So that's one of the reasons for that. Then you have the heavy severe domain boundary, which I've just mentioned, you enter the severe domain. At that point, you enter a phase where everything is non-steady state. So in the severe intensity domain, your oxygen uptake will rise with this secondary slow component. It will carry on rising until you reach VO2 max. When you've reached VO2 max, you might be able to stay there for a minute or two, maybe a little longer, depending on your anaerobic energy reserves and the stores in your muscle but eventually you're going to have to slow down or stop. And that's how we characterize the critical power is by doing a series of exercise bouts at different powers or different speeds in the severe domain. And then you fit a curve to it and then you predict essentially where severe intensity behavior is going to stop. So critical power has often been, I think, misrepresented as the power output that you can sustain forever. But we know physiologically that doesn't happen. I mean, you, you're going to stop eventually for you know, various reasons. Uh, boredom could be one of them. But to my mind, the, what the critical power symbolizes is the point at which the severe intensity responses that you've used to characterize the curve should be expected to cease to happen. So yeah. once you drop down there, you're, you're now in a different intensity domain. And that's consistent with pretty much all of the experimental evidence presented to date no matter how you look at it whether you look at it in isometric contractions whether you look at it in cycling in running in rowing in swimming it all seems to follow this pattern so the nice thing about these intensity domains is it doesn't really matter what sort of exercise modality or what sport you're exercising in or you're training for these things should work because it's fundamental physiology even if your your work is to kind of live long and prosper quite often nice. You're, you're going to get the same intensity domains in those individual muscle cases as you, you would get in the whole body situation. And the only issue with that is that with isometric contractions, it's very hard to identify anything that would look like a lactate threshold, but you can certainly get a critical force or a critical torque that does exactly the same thing as it does during whole body exercise. So that's why we think this is a bioenergetic phenomenon. And we also see the same thing play out in every other animal species that's ever been measured to task failure, whether it's horses, rats, crabs, mice, doesn't matter. They all do the same thing. So they all have this relationship in the severe domain between non-steady state exercise, sustainability, and then where this threshold is. The other thing the curve can do is tell you how big your uh, capacity to work above the critical power is, is what we call our w prime or our distance prime and that's really just a measure of if you're exercising above critical speed or critical power 
how long are you going to sustain that for? And that will depend upon how far above the critical speed or critical power you're exercising. So the higher it is, the shorter the, the bout will be, but they're all related to one another. So that's the severe domain. Um, there is another domain, which is called the extreme domain, which we don't know a great deal about because there's not been a lot of research done on it. But essentially what that is, is a domain in which we have, um, if you're exercising, you are un unable to reach VO2 max before the exercise task ends. In other words, you've got this increase in VO2 heading towards VO2 max, but you become exhausted before you hit it. Whereas in the severe domain, you can always hit VO2 max before you're exhausted. So that's the extreme domain. And that tends to be, um, you're looking at 800 meters and shorter is the sort of athletic event where the extreme domain is, is operative. For the heavy domain, you're looking at marathon and half marathon performances tend to take place in that. Um, so, you know, one to two hours of, of exercise tends to take place in the heavy domain. In the severe domain, then you're talking about 10,000 meters, 5,000 meters, 3,000 meters. Those are the sorts of athletic events and the equivalent durations in other sports um, where the severe domain is important. And in actual fact, for most sports, you are going to be in the severe domain at some point. So if you think about the Tour de France and you might have a five hour stage in the mountains, the stuff that really matters is the stuff, you know, towards the summit and when you're exercising in in that situation it's entering the severe domain that determines who the winner is so if you look at the power profile of a, of a tour de france stage the vast majority of it's in the moderate domain and then when things matter if the sprint at the end or a climb that's when you enter the severe domain and that's where those that physiology that non-steady state physiology really starts to play out and of course, you can think about that in terms of how you would structure training and what you would need to do in each of those domains. And so the severe and extreme domain is largely where you do your interval training. Your sweet spot training is the sort of thing you do in the heavy domain. And then you've obviously got your long, slow distance training that, that occurs in the moderate domain. The only other thing to say about that is that everybody has a different scope for their intensity domain so if you're an elite okay. athlete you're going to have you know your vo2 max is going to be north of five liters per minute that kind of thing or you know 70 mils per kilogram per minute so you're going to have a much broader aerobic intensity spectrum and a lot more of that is going to be taken up by the moderate domain than a normal human so you know if i'm thinking about myself i'm not particularly well trained at the moment my lactate threshold is probably hovering around 100 watts if you're a Chris Froome, it's going to be hovering around 300 watts. And that's going to make, a, I think, a really big difference to the way in which you would approach training because both the absolute stress that you can place the muscle under, just in terms of the forces that the cross bridges are producing, while still being in the moderate intensity domain, the sheer stress that your capillaries are experiencing is going to be much higher in the elite than it is in a normal person. And we don't know a lot about the differences in adaptive responses because, to be perfectly honest, most of the things that we've studied in the lab have been with relatively untrained people yeah. because you get a lot of bang for your buck. Well, how do we apply that to athletes? That's problematic. That's my cat, by the That's way. That's your cat. Yeah, thank you. That, that was a nice little cat. Cat was just acknowledging. Thank you for yes. that yes. extensive summary. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so in, in a nutshell, anything from rest all the way up to like take threshold, that's that's your easy work mm. in in sort of common parlance. Yeah, and then beyond that, you you will be able to sustain this or get to a, a steady yep. state. Yeah, um, up to the point of critical power. Yeah, um, and then beyond that, um, you are going to be fatiguing relatively quickly. Yes. Yeah. And then another another level of of recognition that you're probably not even going to get chance to get your systems going and a VO two max. Yeah. Um, because fatigue is going to kick in quicker, and that's yep. your extreme domain. So those yep. sort of categories yep. of of easy through to uh, yep. as hard as it gets. Yeah. Um, I suppose one of the interesting areas here because you sort of summarize this neatly for for me but one of the problems i think we're facing is the myriad of terms and we're we're latching to that particular concept because we it might be the most robust or it might be um the most replicable or the most relevant and then we're moving to a different term because Mm -hmm is something a little bit more convenient up there yeah, yeah. or or it helps us differentiate the response um it, it's interesting that as physiologists we're not creating consistency or consensus hmm. ourselves are we really i mean a good debate is, is yeah. important but it's, yeah but but actually getting some consistency in this area would i think help athletes and coaches enormously yeah, I think there and there is there are a number of kind of pressures and problems associated with that in the sense that you know we are incentivized to find new and novel things. So there is always the trap to fall into of dis, of discovering a new threshold or a new way of looking at the same threshold and or do it this way rather than that way. Um, and so um, David Bishop's uh, laboratory um, with uh, Jamnik et al. a couple of years ago did had a really nice. Uh, example lactate plot where they plotted every single lactate threshold measure that's in the literature there's about 25 of them appear on the same curve or supposedly trying to identify the same point so it's little wonder that these sorts of things people find difficult to grasp because we haven't helped in that sense I think one of the ways of kind of trying to to rid the brickyard of chaos I think is to accept the fact that there are a finite number of intensity domains where you should expect similar physiological behavior and then whatever threshold whatever term you want to use they should identify the the transition points between those areas of behavior so that's why the three zone model and the, the use of four intensity domains i think is justifiable um, you may, if you're designing a training program for, for practical reasons, you may want to split those up even more into, you know, the, the moderate intensity domain might have a number of zones within it. So you might have pure recovery work, if you can re- even really call it that, or very, very low intensity yeah. work. Um, you might have, you know, pushing the threshold at the top end, maybe something in the middle for very prolonged work. If you're going to be doing a, you know, going to go out for a five hour ride or something like that, you might want to have a zone to work in there. The reality though, is if you're going outdoors, you're going to be transitioning between intensity domains as well. So 
you know, if you hit a hill, there's there's little chance of you staying in the moderate intensity domain. You're going to end up in the heavy, possibly the severe, and you just basically accept that. So, um, but in order to, I, th I think you really just need to be aware of the fact that there are two justifiably identifiable thresholds that matter in physiology. One of those is the lactate threshold. The other one is the maximal steady state. Once you've tied those two down, and I don't really mind what you call them, provided that you try and measure them accurately. And you know if you've measured them accurately because you'll be able to show distinct physiological responses below and above them. Now, most people don't have access to a laboratory and a gas analyzer to be able to do that, but you should be able to infer it from measures of blood lactate, for example. So if you want to exercise in the moderate domain and you think you've got the threshold right, if you take a blood lactate sample after some moderate work, you shouldn't see any significant rise in lactate. If you try to be in the heavy domain, then you should be you know, two to four millimolar lactate. If you're in the severe domain, you've done some intervals and, and you've you know, gone pretty much to, to tolerance, then it should be you know, considerably higher than that, seven, eight, nine millimoles, whatever it might. And if you're you know, particularly anaerobically trained, it'd be considerably higher than that as well. So you can, you can make these inferences um, from the physiological responses you can measure in training. The only caveat to that, of course, is that you can't really control training in the extreme domain in particular using a physiological marker because things just don't respond quickly enough to be useful. Your interval is finished by the time your physiology, in fact, your physiology is responding and reaches its peak after you've finished exercising. So you can't, you have to work on speed or power, which is why a stopwatch is always going to be a useful aid for a coach because yeah. they're going to need to use it at some point. And so, so I mean, you're you're very pro using critical velocity, critical power, and so on. But you're um, quite comfortable or supportive, or you'd recommend the use of maximal lactate steady state that that intensity of which over 25, 30 minutes or so, there's no more than one millimole increase yeah. in lactate. Um, yes and no. Um, <laughs> so yes, yes, because it's the, in the same units as as uh, the lactate threshold, or yeah, the fact I, that critical, I think you start swapping in critical yeah, power and lactate yeah. threshold, or it's synonymous. Yeah, I think we 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 published a paper on this a few years ago with Andy Jones, where we we made the case that critical power or critical speed has more to offer as a marker of of this threshold, if you want to call it that. Um, just because it also allows you to predict performance above it. Um, I think it's been misinterpreted as we were trying to basically kick maximal lactate steady state off its perch and, and make sure nobody uses it. It's not actually the case. I think it is a useful marker because very often in the field, you don't have gas analysis to work with. So um, you you either have to use a lactate monitor or you have to use performance and if you use performance it's critical power critical speed um having said that the the use of maximal lactate steady state will get you a long way to where you need to be in terms of, it's going to be very close to where that threshold is what what's come out in the literature in the last year or so is this notion that maximal lactate steady state might slightly underestimate the true maximal steady state if you measure it with VO2. And we think that might be because there are plasma volume shifts uh, which occur during exercise, which will mean that lactate can drift up, even though metabolically, if you measure it at the muscle, 
you're in a steady state. So if you measured okay. muscle lactate, you have the possibility to do so, it would be steady state. So the maximal steady state VO2 is probably the gold standard marker of the maximal steady state. Uh, we would say you can achieve, you can estimate that using critical power if you've got enough. So you'd want probably four predicting trials. You want to make sure that the athlete or the person you're working with it really did exercise to failure. Because if you if you even slightly off and slightly off the limit, then that's going to completely screw up where that critical power ultimately ends up. So um, it's not an easy thing to, to measure. No. But one of the things I did, and this is long before I was ever research active, and you probably did the same, and many of your uh, listeners may have done a similar thing themselves, is you get your first heart rate monitor, you stick the thing on, it's right, well, well, okay, what does my normal training look like? What does my normal training heart rate look like? You go out for a half an hour run as hard as you can. Well, running as hard as you can for half an hour, you're going to be running at your maximal steady state by definition. So why not just record mean heart rate in the last 20 minutes of that? And hey, presto, you found that threshold. So in a way, there are much easier ways of doing it than measuring lactate or doing your critical power or critical speed, which are probably for most people just as useful. If you want precision, you need a lab. But most people won't need that level of precision because one of the things about the critical power or the maximal lactate steady state itself when people talk about threshold colloquially they probably mean the maximal steady state so that intensity where you're running and you're feeling comfortable and then you push it a bit harder and the wheels you can feel it start you feel the the muscles start to knot and start to the the heat really start to, to build up in the muscle you feel it or the burn if you like you've gone over your maximal steady state you're way above your lactate threshold at that point so that kind of, I used to, when I was in Eastbourne, you know, the kind of runs you used to do down on the downs in Eastbourne, I used to kind of think of, a, is there a forever intensity? And it's just backing off that bit where if you're running up a hill, things really start to go haywire, just backing off a little bit. I now know that's the maximal steady state, but it's something that you can probably estimate with a reasonable degree of confidence by running or cycling at your maximal effort for half an hour. And that's kind of where the functional threshold power and, and all of that work in, in the applied sphere seems to come from. It's that sort of, you know, you can pace this and get pretty close to where this threshold actually is. I think that the, the maximum lactate steady state as a, as a physiologist supporting athletes day to day, that alongside a submaximal easy lactate check at the end of a long run row cycle those are are really useful in supporting the coach um what are you aiming to do in this session and let's give you an answer as to whether that was achieved um doing 1600 meter reps and taking a lactate after the first one and the fourth one and the fifth one sixth one and and seeing whether that is escalating out of control and they're struggling okay now we're seeing a a three four five millimole increase at the from from the first rep to the final rep coach did you want that Mm. no probably not okay Mm. you need to calm this down because Mm. i think as as you as you sort of allude 
most most people will see half an hour and see it as a time trial as mm. opposed to thinking okay this needs to be pacey and in control and do its job as opposed to you know all out intensity yeah. exercise um or or equally that's a really nice way to be able to demonstrate over time to be able to to show an athlete hey look you're, you're running at a similar pace but now what we're looking at is we're seeing from rep one to five we're seeing a decline in lactate mm. and that's that's something quite visual you mm. wouldn't necessarily i certainly seem to sort of remember doing this sort of work regularly and seeing greater responses in training like that than you would do under the the guise of a, a lab test where mm. it's a bit more controlled a little bit more yeah. robust and you need bigger shifts to see mm. the that turn up so mm. it, it it certainly feels as as trying to show uh, an athlete that they're progressing but also being a support coach hold a mirror up is this mm. what you're trying to do yeah maximum lactate steady state or a lactate at the end of a, an easy mm. run is is gives them that good feedback yeah yeah certainly i think the other thing we need to remember is that these these things are dynamic as well you are expecting through the training process to improve them and for them to shift now in an elite athlete they won't shift very much necessarily but we also have to be mindful of the fact that they also change day to day and we we have this notion yeah. now of durability where if you do a lot of um moderate or heavy work you accumulate a, a large volume of work these things will actually drop over time so um you know there's been some really nice work it's sort of in relation to, to breaking two showing that a two-hour bout of exercise will drop your critical power by perhaps as much as 10 percent at least in uh, sub-elite individuals but if you can imagine if you're doing all of your training sessions in a zone and you're pushing the envelope so you're pushing up to the maximal steady state all the time eventually that's going to come down and you're going to flip into the wrong zone if you like you're going to end up doing a severe session when you should have been doing a heavy one and so these sorts of minor changes to your yeah. physiology both day to day and as a result of the work you're doing can potentially have a profound impact on the stress you experience and then obviously how that accumulates over time as well so you've got to like you say you've got to be monitoring this stuff to make sure that you are where you want to be because it's quite easy to end up in a place where you don't want to be if you're trying to push it all the time. And you alluded to the fact that the up to moderate, that's a very, that's a fairly large zone, you know, anything from rest all the way up to first lactate turn point. And then um, heavy is varied, mm. quite varied in terms of its scope for yeah. athletes and so on. Yeah. And severe is just everything north, really, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. But with a, with a, with a yeah. uh, I suppose, um, a definition that mm. in the middle of our extreme that might not be as tangible for everybody. Mm. Um, and so what's your recommendation for people when they prescribe an exercise intensity or, or, um, or the thinking about their physiological responses, about how they use the, the different sized zones to make sense of their world because i think that just categorizing everything below lactate threshold as as one training zone mm. i'm not sure that's going to be that helpful for people equally no. between s s severe and maximal exercise um that's got 
quite a lot mm. of slices for a lot of yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one because the other thing we don't know with any great degree of certainty is what doing certain things in certain parts of those zones will actually achieve. So there's been some research um, over the last 10 years or so that suggested that angiogenesis, so you know, capillarization, so building your blood vessels, um, this is the sort of thing that you'd need to do lots of low intensity work for. So you need to be exercising in the moderate domain. Um, funnily enough, um, when you actually look at the intensities they were working at, it was 60 to 70% VO2 max. It wasn't based on lactate threshold at all. So actually they were probably in the heavy domain. And it was also suggested that doing high intensity intervals was not the best thing to do for angiogenesis. But then when you read the small print of the, that work, that study was actually the second part of the first study that talked about doing moderate exercise. So the participants who were doing the high intensity work had just done eight weeks of training. So they weren't actually untrained to start with. So trying to understand what the underlying physiology and how, how these adaptations are going to occur in each domain is really something we don't have any good handle on at the moment, partly because from a molecular perspective, we've pretty much identified a couple of pathways that work in terms of mitochondrial biogenesis. And we don't know how, how big the amplification of those pathways is if you do lots of moderate work versus doing more heavy work versus doing severe and extreme work. Most training studies are in the heavy and severe domain by definition because researchers have got a finite amount of time. They want to make sure it works. So they stick with the high intensity, often you know, sprint interval training or high intensity interval training to get as much bang for their buck as they possibly can. That's not helpful if you're then trying to develop a training program that has some kind of physiological justification to it. So this is a very long-winded way of saying I can't really answer your question. No, it's from an, an evidence base because it's 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 we we don't have it yet. Is, is the simple answer? It's an interesting one because it, it, it's sort of, again if you, if I think back from the utility of this all the way back to I've got to try and make sense of this for you as a client, for you mm -hmm. as an athlete, as a coach. So um, so I'll give you an example, and and I've asked. Um, I've asked this athlete for permission to to quote the numbers mm. and uh, and gracefully he said yes so this was James Cracknell a few years ago now um, and so he was aspiring to get into the boat race and and he dropped me a line and said look I'm I'm trying to do this and I said what are you doing that for <laughs> um, he's aged 46 47 mm. I think at the time um, the long story short he was off the back of uh it was a sort of like a hunger games uh but with bear grills tv program so he was quite emaciated and since james had retired as an olympic rower two-time olympic champion in rowing he'd done an awful lot of in ultra endurance events mm. so really been working that low intensity um zone and almost complete absence of weight training and higher power output work Long story short, James got injured um, his rib. Um, so he, he threw himself into the training. He picked up a bit of an injury. And so we got him onto the bike 
we got them onto the Watt bike for quite a bit of time to to build the engine, but also to try and nudge some some of the other areas forward. And so I got James to to do a couple of of tests. And so we're entering some new terms here, but maximum power. So the maximum amount of power that you could generate in, in within ten seconds, and max minute power. So that's derived for people who are listening in that are familiar with that. That's derived from a ramp test, and it's the the maximum power of the final minute or the, the, the maximum power achieved. So James did both of those tests. So his figures were maximum power, considering he's a ninety kilo guy, uh, eight hundred and fifty watts and max minute power 510 watts so the guy had an, a huge engine mm. in classic terms of aerobic capacity mm. not much grunt <laughs> no I, I, yeah i mean i back in the day i'd be able to produce more power than that and i'm 67 kilos so it's yeah. and, and given that his his olympic pedigree would have had an awful lot of weight training that does also show that these things do decline and fall Absolutely. away and you need to keep yeah. on it yeah and so he was like okay well what what do you think of that and i said okay well 510 is pretty impressive he said mm. okay so what's my reference point i said well i'm not that that good aerobically um as a former washed up sprinter um so I, my max minute power is 340 which wouldn't raise much much um uh, many eyebrows and he said okay but then what about your max power Okay, so mine's currently at 1280, which is decent in mm. terms of, uh, you know, you, as you'd expect that for a, from a sprinter. He's like, oh, right, okay. And so just, just to remember that for, for people, 510 watts aerobically for, for, for James, I can give him training sessions mm. for, for hours at 400 mm. watts, whereas for me, I could do reps at 400 watts. Yeah. Um, Whereas he can't necessarily put the grunt down. And so I've got much more scope and capacity to be cutting up, prescribing, doing different types of intervals hmm. north of my, my aerobic yeah. capacity. Yeah. Whereas James has got the opposite. Yeah. We, yeah. we can we can cut it up and, and divide hmm. that and prescribe differently below his aerobic capacity. Hmm. And that in itself presents a really interesting challenge of do I go for uniform training zones so that they're equally sized hmm. for the, the purposes of prescribing and categorizing and reviewing training? Or do I stick to these landmarks yeah. where there's quite quite big variety in the in the size? What, what's hmm. your kind of take on, on being a guide coaches for that? Yeah, I think that... Um... It's a really tricky one. If we, we take the, the actual case you're talking about, then I would be looking at the 800 watt maximum power and saying, yeah. okay, well, what's the determinant of that? Do we want to raise that? And, and presumably the answer to that is yes. At which point you're not necessarily using the exercise intensity domains model to do it because I'd be saying, right, you need to do some leg press work. You actually need to increase your, your lower body muscle mass and, and you know, the maximum power of it. So, um, and, and perhaps be doing maximal sprinting to try and push that yeah. number up. Um, that then gives you the scope. So it, it's, a, it's a little bit like, you know, 
the analogy of, of building something, you need the foundation first. So what, what foundations do you want to, to, to build before you actually end up with the thing you, you really want? You might need to take several steps to get there because it's, it's not something you're going to be able to say, this is my final prescription. You know, this is what you're going to do. And then you get on and do yeah. it. You might have to do, you know, a stage first. I remember talking to, to Len Parker Simpson about his work with the, uh, who was he working? He was working with the, the team pursuit, uh, the female yep. team pursuit riders for British cycling. And they said, well, they, they've, they've got all the endurance stuff. That's fine. But what they don't know how to do, they don't even know how to lift weights. So they got an S&C coach in and actually got them to they they started the program with okay let's put the weights in first and then we'll put the endurance stuff in second and so they actually managed to build up their maximal power and you know in this particular case their their w prime so the, the curvature constant parameter was what they were focusing on so they went for the really heavy stuff first and then they had the scope to build in those intervals later so that's maybe the way to do it is if you see an obvious gap or an obvious um, limitation or an obvious low point, then you need to to work on that bit first before you start thinking about then structuring the rest of it, perhaps. Yeah, okay. So that that points to something I'd love to get your take on. And there's some re recent discussion. Um, so Samuel Mailer from Hertfordshire. Yep. Um, and he's done a study around looking at the variability of sustained work at different intensities mm. prescribed either by physiological thresholds such as yeah. lactate threshold gas exchange yeah. threshold and critical power versus a percentage of vo2 max mm. and the summary i think uh with being that the participants exercising at a percentage of vo2 max showed a more varied exercise tolerance mm. So it wasn't as precise, and it seems that there's a bit of a wave of interest here mm. of, of saying, ah, well, actually, if you want homogeneity, you want similar base responses, you want a known way in which you might respond to that exercise prescription, you should probably go for lactate threshold or critical power. Yeah. Um, yeah. That seems to be a summary, but one of, the, one of the thoughts when I read that through was if somebody doesn't show uh, good exercise tolerance at a fixed percentage of VO2 max, I'd probably get them to do more of that. Um, so that would give me good intel. Mm. And this is a little bit like, um, certainly when I saw, went up to see Peter Keane back in the late 90s and and he was just starting the British cycling revolution, excuse the pun, but, but he was like, no we're not doing any wet chemistry, no gas analysis. Mm. It's just max minute power yeah. and max power. That's it. Yeah. And if someone's not good at something, <laughs> we're going to get them good at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd love to get your thoughts on, on me navigating that one as someone supporting athletes of, of, of whilst it might not be kind of ideal, it doesn't mm. look, it looks like there's noise for me often as an applied scientist, that noise shows opportunity, uh, yeah. a weakness or a strength. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you think about what's happening there, what, what you're doing, if you say a off a fixed percentage, let's say let's exercise you at max minute power and see how long you hold on for and see or see what your physiological response is. What you're actually doing there is saying, 
what is your tolerance to a, a known bout of exercise in the severe domain? And through whatever intervention you're doing, whether it's training or nutritional or you know, recovery, whatever it is, and you see substantial improvements in exercise tolerance, lowering of lactate, so if you're measuring VO2 or heart rate or whatever it is, that's lower too, then what you're seeing is you're either seeing a change in your distance prime or your W prime, or you're seeing an elevation in the maximal steady state as a result of that. So things are heading in the right direction. The only counter to that is you don't precisely know why or what's changing until you've measured it. So there's that aspect to it as well. So I think as a general guide through a training process, that's that's really useful information. But it's then where does that information take you next? What what is what is underneath it that's changing? And therefore, you know, maybe there's some if it's the maximal steady state that's increasing, that's probably what you you know that's that's the the best scenario you've got because nothing really works better than increasing the maximum sustainable power so that's really what you want to to try and achieve um whereas if it's perhaps your your w prime or your distance prime that's something that's that's a lot more malleable and and kind of a lot more acute if you like so then you can draw that down very quickly um but it's it's worth knowing that. Having said that, if you're an athlete and you see the improvement, do you at that point do you really care? You've actually got you know it's it's improved, so that's good. Um, but but it's then it's what's interesting to me is what's the next question? So why is it improved? What's what's underneath that improvement? And do you then need to refocus to carry on getting the improvement? So if it's it is the maximal steady state that's improved, do you now need to start working on the things that might improve? other aspects of tolerance the maximum the, the maximum sprint power for example do you need to work higher do you need to work lower you know what what is it you're trying to push and how are you going to be able to push it and i think some of those questions we can answer physiologically some of those questions are a question an experienced coach will be able to answer some of those things an athlete might it might be a feel thing that i just you know i feel flat in this zone i need to kind of work in this area a bit more that kind of thing and that's why I think these zones are useful because what perhaps used to happen back in the 1980s was people would do quite a lot of monotonous training. And so having this zonal model, and we can talk about you know pyramidal or polarized training all we like, but one of the things that's been useful about that conversation, most people now having that conversation is their understanding that there, there needs to be a variety and there are a number of different options in your toolbox now where you can change the nature of your training quite profoundly by making small adjustments to where you're ex exercising both within these zones and between them as well in order to try and keep those adaptations moving forward. And and just refer, looking back there about critical power, what's your um, what's your sense about about why it's not more commonly used? Um, it, it feels as though there's um, certainly from yourself and Andy Jones and others. It feels like it's a there's a there's a campaign of come on, we should be we yeah. should be using critical power more. Um, and, yeah. and and that's not me being um, glib about it, but it's. It's recognizing that fundamentally it might not it might make sense, but a lot of people don't use it 
Um, mm. What's your sense there? Yeah, I think there's, there's a number of aspects to that. I mean, the first one is how cumbersome it is to use. I mean, in terms of user friendliness, one of the problems with any measure of maximal steady state is deriving the values are not particularly user friendly. Doing a series of 30 minute runs, for example, in the middle of any training cycle is difficult to achieve. Exercising to task failure in a laboratory situation is not a nice thing to do for anyone. Doing a three minute all out test is definitely not a nice thing to do for anybody. And so because all these things are effort dependent, that that's problematic um, and arguably more effort dependent than doing a CPET or a ramp test because everybody yeah. understands it's 10 minutes. You go as hard as you can at the, you know, the last couple of minutes is really hard and then you get your numbers. Whereas you're going to have to come in two or three or four times to do the same sort of thing to get critical power or critical speed. Um, the, of course, the other thing is people have started using training data and yeah. the, the average power at, at various, um, you know, or, or rather the, the power that you can sustain for various durations and then modeling that and calling that critical power. That has problems in that if you're not actually exercising maximally, that's going to affect what the critical power ends up being. Um, and you may underestimate it, or you may overestimate it, depending on the duration of the trials that you're using. Um, but, but is there a case there in terms of it not necessarily uh, picking up the classic exhaustive power output measures? So that the highest power or, or mm. highest speed that you can sustain um, uh, for, for a given duration. But does it does it offer the opportunity to plot what you are sustaining mm, yeah. <laughs> regularly yeah. for those set training sessions? Yeah. Yes. Whether that is a, a 5K swim or a 20K row yeah. or a yeah. 100K cycle, getting an idea of what mm. you're normally yeah. uh, turning over and seeing whether that shifts over time. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, yeah, it's, it's another classic one of people saying, well, don't worry about the lactate threshold, just worry about what the curve's doing. If you're shifting the curve, then things are working. The same is true with power. Um, it's, it's also, I suppose, if you're going to use those sorts of data to predict what critical power is, the other way of looking at that is you can calibrate that by getting somebody to exercise just above it or just below it. And you should be expecting to see those very physiological responses in lactate or VO2 or heart rate that I mentioned earlier. So, um, and if you're, if you're not seeing that, if you're exercising, if you say, right, exercise 15 watts above where we think your critical power is from what, what we've looked at in your training data, and you're very definitely steady state and your lactate's only two millimoles per liter, then you've clearly not got it accurate and, and you're exercising. And the, the problem with that is when you make the prescription off that, you might end up exercising in the wrong domain. So the only, the only good thing about that is the wrong domain will probably be lower than you expected it to be. So okay. um, in, in a sense, from a kind of an overtraining perspective, at least then you can, you can recalibrate that and, and just gradually work back up to where you need to be, I suppose. So, um, but there are problems in that sense. I suppose the other thing is characterizing critical power does require a little bit of mathematical know-how. Um, so not, not many people have software packages on their computer that can do nonlinear regression, but you can obviously plot these in a linear fashion. So you can plot the amount of work done in a session 
against the time it took to do it and then you plot all of those and then you've got a straight line so if you can do basic linear regression using excel you can calculate critical power and critical speed or whatever it is um, so that is it used to be a problem in in terms of the, the technical difficulty of it but now it shouldn't be now that people are aware of the fact that there are linear versions of this model um, the same thing is is kind of true of, of maximal lactate steady state is that that is also cumbersome um, and at least one of those bouts is probably going to be exhaustive as well so the the lack of athlete friendliness is is always going to be a problem with with critical power and the maximal steady state but i think what it offers you if you get it right and, and you characterize it correctly and, and we talk about some of Phil Skiba's work with the W prime balance. You, there is the possibility that you can evaluate how you're exercising and how you're fatiguing in real time using the critical power model. So for those coaches who are that technically minded, they you know might want to, to use that model in that way. So it's, it's essentially like all of these things, it just takes out a little bit of the guesswork. I think for most quote unquote normal people, you don't need that level of precision or that level of insight to be able to structure your training or your racing uh, around those sorts of concepts anyway. So in that sense, it's there, it's always going to be there because it's a fundamental bioenergetic property of the body, but it's not necessarily something you need tight numbers on at that point. And so you could perhaps update me here a little bit because it, those those limitations that you've referred to have been almost exclusively the barriers as to why I haven't really delved into it much. It would be one of those things I would probably keep in the background that, mm. you know, you'd, you would keep an eye on their, their, their maximal efforts, their time trials, and you would, you would plot it and you would keep mm. a, a watching brief as opposed to it being front and center, because mm. there's nothing that's so disenchanting as you start saying, we're going to do a special test and, and here's mm. the test. Oh, and um, we don't really know. Um, yeah, yeah. Athletes switch off from that really quickly, and mm. and particularly given that it's got a high bar in terms of you're asking me to do what, mm. you know, whether yeah. that's the all-out efforts or the three-minute all-out you mentioned, which is pretty mm. sado masochistic invention. Thank you for that, Annie. Thanks, no problem. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and so so in that sense, it's um, it's trying to find ways of of integrating this but if you could update me on on how well does critical power critical speed uh track training adaptations and are we seeing that manifested because if it's worth it and if it's got a fine handle on training adaptations then that in itself is going to to warrant justifying its inclusion in the training program and routine testing yeah i, I think the answer is, if you look at the literature, it, it tracks it very well. Um, so it is sensitive to training in that sense. Um, in terms of its practical use, there are potential problems in that the variance in any time to exhaustion performance, and you're adding them all together, that can be problematic. So as an example, when you measure critical power and what you often do is you you ignore the confidence limits associated with you you ignore the error 
you just plot the curve, you get your R squared value or whatever, and you say, oh, great, it's, it's 0.99 or whatever. Great, it's a perfectly linear fit or non-linear fit, whatever it is. But when you look at the confidence limits associated with the parameter estimates, you think, oh, actually, because it's plus or minus 20 watts or 30 watts or sometimes 40 watts. And you think, well, how are you going to see a training-induced change if you've got confidence limits of plus or minus 40 watts? No elite athlete is going to produce that big a training change in six weeks. So is that useful? Well, it's useful in the sense that it's telling you where performance probably is. But you've got to appreciate that critical power is if you and, and the maximal steady state too is essentially a band of power. And it's more important to know for certain where you are above it or below it for in, in terms of the imposition of training stress and for saying, well, we want to do some heavy exercise today, we want to do some interval tomorrow, whatever it might be. I think that's more important than obsessing over what your critical power is or what your functional threshold power is or what your maximal steady state power is. Provided you know where the ballpark is, you're then in a situation where you can actually use that knowledge to prescribed training above and below that point yeah okay it makes sense and and in terms of your recommendation for for athletes and coaches do you advise respecting those those thresholds um in terms of prescribing to a certain speed or a power um or do you encourage people to be going off like a secondary measure some, something like a heart rate response what's your what's your advice there um, I think in, if you asked me that question 25 years ago, it'd be all about heart rate and, you know, power cranks and things were a newfangled thing. I think now we have GPS monitoring of pretty much everything. Even if you have a mobile phone, you can probably do this sort of thing. It's, it's more off speeds. Um, you can measure heart rate alongside that, but you have to accept the fact that heart rate will drift. Um, so if and when I when I set these zones for anybody, I'm aware of the fact that you've got a threshold and you might have a, say, let's say a lactate threshold heart rate of 150 beats a minute just to throw a number out. Um, if I was going to set a training zone there, I would have a buffer below that. So if I wanted to work below or, or, or in the moderate intensity domain, I probably wouldn't even include... 147 to 153 beats a minute as a heart rate you would ever want to prescribe because you'd want to have a buffer to make sure that they didn't end up in the wrong intensity domain. Because if you said you're the zone, you know, let's say the upper end of your moderate intensity domain might be, you know, 145 to 150 beats per minute, let's say, and you prescribe training, so I want you in that zone, you know that an athlete is going to probably push to 150. And as a result of that, they may end up flipping into the wrong place. So having those small buffers around each zone, I think, is useful so that you definitely have athletes working <coughs> in the zone you prescribe them. Um, and, and that also speaks to the fact that these things are variable. They don't, your lactate threshold cannot be measured to the nearest watt or to the nearest you know, 0.1 kilometer per hour. They have some variability in them day to day and within the measurement error themselves and you've got to i think you have to put that into your training zones as well because otherwise there is that possibility that athletes are not doing the training you prescribed them simply because you put you didn't have enough of a buffer between these particular threshold points 
Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I would say the same thing in the sense that, you know, 20 years ago, I would have been all about that and, mm. and trying to coach, educate, re-educate, add extra mm. layers of more information yeah. around yeah. heart rate yeah. and, uh, and fielding so many questions mm. back as to, oh, you said I should be low 150, but mm. I, it felt quite easy and I was 157. Yeah. Yeah. What the hell? And so I've fallen out of love with heart rate zones in that sense. I, I, I don't, um, I don't push it. don't encourage mm. it necessarily that the afferent impact inputs, um, environmental factors, yeah. how people feel, mm. um, what they're wearing, yeah. uh, the terrain, whether that's variable. And I think mm. it just overly encouraged over the years, mm. uh, overuse of flat roots. Yeah. So constantly. Oh, constant yeah. steady Pepsi levels yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um potentially the same routes mm. so it provided some control so they had some reference point yep. where it's known but that yep. that then meant that it was boring yep. it was monotonous and it, yep. it, it people yep. switched off from training yep. or found it um it disengaged them mm. so it was almost encouraging all the wrong yeah the wrong training behaviors by trying to stick stick within this zone or kept or worried that they were going to creep over that zone and then slowing down. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm not sure that's the right training effect really. I'm, I'm yeah. looking for. And I think back in the day when, when it, it uh, certainly when you and I were undergraduates, downloading heart rate was was a, a really quite a technical thing to do not many it's very people exciting, managed to do it. It? yeah yeah it was. a little progress bar yeah yeah and, <laughs> also, and then you kind of get about 15 data points and it took that long to kind of yeah, download print it, it off on a yeah yeah <laughs> but but the interesting thing about that is you have somebody oh yeah i went out and i had a really nice stable heart rate and you look at it and it's just a straight line and you realize it wasn't it, it picked up a heart rate at some point and then it said computer doesn't work but it kept that heart rate for the rest of the session and they weren't working <laughs> at that at all and then the other one was when um i was uh, as a first year it was the first time that i really started to be critical of of heart rate and and those sorts of measurements and think about um what what it's actually telling you is i went out um for a bike ride and it was actually out to pevensey levels and it was snowing and i went out and i just could not get my heart rate up for love nor money yeah. and i went back as well why is this and then it just so happened i was reading something about the dive reflex and then trigeminal nerves and, and actually yes if you've got a cold face your heart rate's going to drop so that's why i couldn't get my heart rate up so and then the other thing of course is if you're doing intervals, heart rate is going to not respond very quickly, and then it's going to stay elevated after the interval. So if you're trying to control intensity of heart rate, it's always going to be damped as well. And then you've got cardiovascular drift and kind of dehydration, all those sorts of things come into play. So yeah, it's it's a marker, certainly, and it's certainly part of the conversation, but it should, shouldn't ever really be the driver anymore, I think. Is, is no. the I mean, I'm all in favour of of keeping an eye on it, mm. um, and certainly being able to give you information about uh, the effect, also the response to the session. Mm. Um, I, I found it very useful uh, when I was recovering from COVID, mm. maybe six to eight weeks yep. or so. Yeah, and uh, I'd go out for a run. I, I'd actually feel quite good, um, but my heart rate, my breathing rate, didn't. 
Uh, mm. So things were out slightly. Yeah, so it yeah. gave me good feedback. Yeah. It gave me uh, an idea of being able to settle settle below a certain heart rate and actually back the mm. training intensity off. Uh, I love the. I remember a story. I don't know how how um, legit this is, but it's uh, it's a good it's a good tale anyway. The I think it's Australian uh, endurance cycling team, and they were prescribed these ten hour rides, and they would go off and do two hours and they would uh, park up below an electricity pylon. This was the days before GPS. They'd have a four hour kip, but <laughs> you just had this noise yeah. from the pylons onto mm. the heart rate monitors and then they'd cycle back. And <laughs> <So, laughs> able to really, yeah. really, I, I love it from the point of view that even if it's false, I love it from the point of view that that it, they're tailoring the training to mm. what they think they need yeah. and that perceived uh, requirement and volume yeah. as opposed to what coach wants. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like Craig Williams used to tell the story of when they, they put uh, activity monitors on the kids and it was basically <laughs> on, a, on, on an ankle or something so they could work out you know, like a pedometer. And the kids would just literally sit on a chair and swing their leg back and forward. And that would be all they doing. And then they think they were walking like 20 miles a day or something. <laughs> They'd actually just been sat there on a table, just kind of swinging backwards and forwards, <laughs> not really doing anything. So, yeah. Yeah. Our biology is inherently lazy in that sense yes. of, the, yes. yeah. of uh, everyone getting a wee for the mm. first day, getting really yep. sore arms. And then the, yeah. after a couple of weeks, just sat yeah. down and wiggling their yeah. hands about. Yeah. We digress. Um, the, But it probably hints to what I think is, I, I would say this is, tends to get lost a lot of the time, doesn't give, get given the, the same kudos and prestige in the, in the literature. Um, but often it come, we come back to this concept when we're talking to athletes and that's, that's latching our training guidance to our breathing. And so when we're talking about gas exchange thresholds and ventilatory equivalents, we often don't really refer to that very much mm. when we're prescribing training mm. in, in, a, in an objective way. We're, we're latching it to a ventilatory threshold mm. one or two. Yeah. Yeah. But we end up coaching it, don't we? Mm. We end up saying, well, it's roughly the, yeah. the intensity before you stop having a conversation. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder why we don't use that more, even if it mm. might not be the most robust, it's actually mm. really applicable, really un relatable, um, and useful for, for athletes to get their head around. Yeah. It's interesting because there, there is a, you know, it's quite a bit of research lately talking about breathing frequency and, and using that as a, a marker of, of exercise tolerance. Um, the interesting thing about the whole you know conversational exercise things i know joe doust always used to talk about this kind of thing because he did his phd on the, the same sort of thing back in the early 1980s and it was one of those things where you couldn't really attach it to any of these threshold markers so in terms of how your breathing reacts it would also depend on the athlete themselves as well so if you're if you're a normal person, those if you go above the lactate threshold, you'll start breathing a bit harder, but you probably won't notice it very, very much. 
it's not until you go beyond the maximal steady state where you're really having to interrupt your speaking to actually or, or interrupt your breathing to speak if you like or, or one way or the other but it's that's really quite a difficult um thing to tie between these zones as well um so it's not a particularly coherent answer to say that there's more work needs doing on this, certainly. But when Joe looked at it, he couldn't make them marry up, if you like. But uh, I think also if you if you are a very highly trained athlete, your minute ventilation is going to be proportionately higher in the moderate domain anyway. So you may have may have experienced more of it than me, but it, I would imagine if you are an elite athlete working at the upper end of your moderate domain, it's probably quite hard to talk then anyway. Would that be a, a fair assessment or is that um, not, not your experience? I suppose I, I can try and remember making conversation with athletes during their training <laughs> sessions now, but um, it doesn't, it doesn't strike hmm. me as that. I think one of the prevailing thoughts on this is, is when an athlete is tired when they're fatigued, when they're struggling to adapt and cope with the training load, it shows up in their breathing. Mm, yeah. And and so people will, will report that. They might feel heavy legs, for example. Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily remember an association between maybe a little bit of suppression of, of blood lactate, perhaps mm. from carbohydrate um, intake, not quite matching mm. the training load, and so we'd encourage that. But very commonly, people will say, my breathing was elevated today. My breathing for that oh, workload yeah, yeah, yeah. was was off. Yeah. And as intel for for me and for the mm. coach, that's interesting. Yeah. Something's up. And, mm. and some of these big global, mm. you know, multifactorial things, like heart rate too, mm. um, they aggregate some of the signals yeah. and several things feeding in might muddy the waters. You might not know which, which one is actually yeah. giving you the, the feedback, yeah. but something is, yeah. and that yeah. gives you permission to then start inquiring a bit more. Yeah. Um, it was always a bit of a red flag when an athlete would say, yeah, my breathing's off today. Hmm. Okay. You know, if, if you're, heart you know your resting heart rate might be a bit high um you might add it to another few markers yeah. that would give you permission to probably back their training off a little yeah. bit yeah yeah i mean that to me that would indicate they've probably crossed a threshold so if they were exercising at the top end of the heavy domain they're probably for whatever reason if their critical powers dropped for some reason or they've you know they've had us and if they, they're going through a particularly heavy training <clears throat> phase that's where the durability kind of thing comes in, where these things are dynamic and shifting. So, yeah. and that would definitely show up in the breathing because if you do cross that heavy, severe domain boundary, that's going to produce quite a heavy ventilatory stimulus if you're in the severe domain expecting to be in the heavy domain. Because we know that fatigue and all of the things that, all the physiological responses that occur alongside it can occur <laughs> four to five times faster just above critical power than just below it so if you do have that shift then that's definitely going to show up in things like particularly breathing because i think it is you're, you're absolutely right it's one of those things that you don't really perceive heart rate but you definitely perceive your breathing and you can you obviously perceive your, what your legs are doing your arms are doing whatever when you're whenever you're doing your exercise 
but it's the breathing is the one thing that sorts seems to be slaves to perception of effort yeah. and how hard things feel is how hard you're breathing so yeah when you when you do cross those boundaries that's the most noticeable thing is that you can't get your breath or you can't keep control of the of your breathing the way and in fact i would say if you wanted to look at a correlation if an athlete says i feel in control it's because they feel in control of their breathing more than anything else or many, anything else they can talk about that's what they're they're actually experiencing if their breathing goes through the roof then that's because other things are happening in the body that they might not be quite so able to perceive but the breathing will tell you that already because it's essentially the co2 coming out of the muscle that's that's causing this problem that's then stimulating that extra ventilation or the ph or whatever it might be or the hydrogen ions but something is going on in the muscle that's then causing that breathing rate or breathing you know, minute ventilation to go through the roof and it might be that they perceive first but it's because they crossed some kind of threshold or, or there's something not quite right with where they wanted to be where they actually are and that's probably related to critical power and the starting to draw down your w prime in that particular case yeah and um that you know that, that idea of control whenever i'd ask people when did you notice it they'd say within the first couple of minutes hmm. and my my nerd is thinking about um, yeah you know, the, the, how ventilation settles down at a plateau and yeah and so on but it was quite easy to to hmm. notice it and, yeah. and in, interestingly the um that that idea of control and how powerful that is it was one of the best ways to be able to want a better of a term sell in spiritual muscle training to people mm. yeah yeah because people that. people are like, i don't want to be breathing oh, my, i get my, my lungs get a good workout anyway they'd always put some barriers up to do this mm. sort of resisted mm. snorkel training yeah um but whenever i'd say you know what it feels like on the first lap of um, the, the end of the first lap of 800. Hmm. You know what the breathing feels like? And everyone going, yeah, I know what that feels like. Right. Okay. Well, the idea is that we make the second lap feel a bit easier. And they're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm into mm. that now. Mm. Yeah. Of just that control because it mm. just feels like it's escalating yeah. out of control. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. And funnily enough, if you look at the literature and, and the ventilatory responses to constant load exercise in the literature, there's no such thing as a second wind, but it's a colloquial term we use a lot. And that's possibly because when people have used, back in the day when we didn't have measures of speed necessarily, we had heart rate and that kind of thing, people would go out and they do a run and they'd start the first two or three minutes because it you haven't started to, to notice how hard it is. You always run faster in the first mile than you do in the next five. And that's why it settles down. And so your second wind is actually the fact that you're running slower. And maybe people didn't get that initially, but we now understand why those things probably happen. So in terms of ventilatory drive, once you back it off a bit, you, if you like, you've kind of overread the system. And it's a little bit like the whole idea of fast start pace strategy. You're actually pushing or, or essentially in a, in a very kind of, micro sense priming the system and then backing off and that then makes the whole thing feel much easier than it perhaps is because you've had that initial push in the beginning um so you know kind of fiddling around with 
your initial pace maybe your first interval should be slightly harder than all the others because then you can, you can actually feel like you can sustain that hard work for longer um, okay yeah interesting yeah. i suppose uh, very similar to the idea of uh, sprinting for the line when actually yeah. it's the one who slows down the least yes in exactly. that sense yeah, yeah okay yeah. yeah yeah interesting um so super useful in terms of trying to get a, a handle on training zones training intensity domains and you know if you if you step back from all that the complexity in this area what what would you say athletes and coaches really need to be bearing in mind to to try and make sense of not only their physiology but also how they're they're categorizing and prescribing training yes yeah, so again it goes back to the three zone model approach um, and like I said, it doesn't it doesn't really matter how you slice those up as such. You you may, and there there are all sorts of different training zone models out there. Um, and as I said, it, they should really be based fundamentally on what physiological response you're going to get. But also, one of the things about setting these training zones is if all the users have to understand what the purpose is of exercising at a in a particular zone for a particular day for a particular reason. So um, you can often see, uh, you know, here's our anaerobic capacity zone, for example. There isn't really a zone that's called that necessarily, or it doesn't necessarily drive that, but at least it gives the athlete something to, oh, this is why I'm doing it. Because one of the things we haven't perhaps talked about is being an athlete and doing this training is really, really hard and giving them a purpose that's perhaps one of the, the good things about these zones is it it does at least say oh that's why i'm doing this today that's why i'm putting myself through this today because tomorrow i'm going to be better off for it or, or what have you so um in order to do that of course you need to be able to slave this to particular physiological processes and i think in the severe intensity domain, the non-steady state, you you could perhaps break the zone up into several chunks because we all know about long intervals versus short intervals versus sprint intervals. They all have a slightly different purpose. And so, you know, you might be doing drills which are trying to simulate race performance as opposed to simply doing intervals to try and push up vo2 max you do your classic vo2 max intervals so that may then give the athlete something well i can look at this and look at my times and look at my my breathing my, my heart rate the, the, the perceived intensity of this in comparison to what my performance goal is so it then gives you something to, to hang your hat on there so i remember in the breaking two they did a lot of work where they would do intervals at 21.1 kilometers per hour and then measure lactate at the end of each interval or the end of each lap or, or, or each mile rep or whatever it was. So they could tell whether or not they were steady state or non-steady state at the intensity they were going to have to work at for two hours if they were going to break that barrier. So, you know, also as, a, as a, a means of calibration, it's very useful. So it always comes back to what is the physiological response going to be? What is the likely tolerable duration of that going to be? You also have to be mindful of what the recovery process after that is going to be. So if you're doing a lot of heavy intensity exercise, you're going to be drawing down your carbohydrate or your, your muscle glycogen reserves much, much more than you would if you were doing, say, 
you know, bouts of moderate intensity exercise, which might be of a similar duration, for example. So then how do you feed? How do you recover? How do you sleep? All of those kind of things come into play as well. So, you know, the zones allow you to know what the stress was and therefore to be able to tailor what your recovery is going to be thereafter and then also schedule when your next training bout is going to be. So that's another aspect to it that, you know, is, is really, really important because you're trying, the adaptation doesn't occur when you're training, it occurs afterwards. And I think that's another thing that, as opposed to 20 years ago, where athletes were often, or not so much athletes, but certainly people who were training to try and improve their own personal performance, the weekend warriors amongst us, including myself, would be thinking, well, I can do some more today and then a bit more is better still and more is better than that. Well, actually, no, it isn't because that's just going to cause stress that's going to affect the next training session. And so trying to structure things in that way and having those and knowing what was going on in each zone or what, what will happen in each zone is important to know for the next training session as well. Yeah, yeah it was super sensible, sensible. And I think that the, um, I, I see the community getting a bit wound up with my training system mm. or this, this structure being the answer mm. and, and thinking much more in detail than I think the bio, the biology is actually recognizing mm. and whether it's a seven zone zone mm. system or a three zone system, you know, ultimately the purpose, you want to see yeah. people improving. And if they're not improving, what's going to happen? Yeah. You know, that, that those, those to me are the, are the options that you've got available is mm. that if you're, if you're making a good rate of improvement, fantastic. We'll, yeah. we'll keep, keep working mm. with that. But at some yeah. point you're going to reach a bit of a plateau. And so yeah. we need to nudge, one mm. of the things forward and we'll yeah. use the zones yeah. or or break the zone model mm. or even do some sessions that you know yeah. we don't actually monitor it yeah um because we want you we want to sort of sort of supercharge some adaptation yeah. we want to mix things up so your body mm. starts to recognize yeah oh i've 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 got complacent i need to mm. improve yeah. again yeah yeah, it's interesting. A couple of things there. First of all, Mother Nature doesn't care how many zones you've got, so she's going to adapt anyway. That's the first thing. The second thing is the the interesting thing about um, often you see with with people who have plateaued in training, often there's something that's obvious that's missing. So a good example is I've worked with a marathon runner many years ago, and I discovered she didn't do any intervals at all. And so she wasn't doing anything at all in the severe domain. And yet she was a former marathon champion. She, she won the Dublin Marathon many years previous, and she was now a veteran athlete. And it turns out that she had a fear of doing high-intensity work because as a child, she'd had malaria. And then as a junior athlete, whenever she did interval training, it wiped her out because there was still some you know, residual effects of the malaria. So what I did was I got her on a treadmill and I exercised her at her marathon pace but did it in intervals. And then the next week she came in, just added a kilometer an hour and did the intervals again. Added, And after about six weeks, she was running at VO2 max, doing just standard, you know, two minutes on, two minutes off intervals. And all of a sudden she realized, well, now that opens up, I can go away and do some 800 meter reps now. And I could yeah, do nice. some mile reps and stuff like that. So often people get, and people are creatures of habit. I think that's the, the point I'm trying to make. And 
Some of the habits you develop are because of avoidance of things you don't like. Some of the habits are because you've been told something works and so you've overemphasized yeah. that. And so you often end up with an unbalanced training program without necessarily knowing it because in your own mind, it's working for you. You're getting slightly faster or you know whatever it might be or you're 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 achieving close to your personal best at certain points in a season but there's something missing and if you just unlock what's missing you know and it might be quite obvious to somebody who doesn't see it so I'm quite keen for for anybody who's out there training is it's sometimes nice to just open up and say here's my standard training week can you see anything that's missing there and I used to do this as a um, as a, a seminar in one of my training modules of just get the students to write down their typical week of training and then get the class just swap around and, and, and give them some advice about, well, okay, why are you doing this? What's, what's going on here? Why don't you consider doing this? And then I, I tell them in the second hour to, to develop a new training program or a new training block based upon what was there before and what you would add to it. And the number of students who went out of that room saying, great, I can do, I can do this now, having never thought of it before. And it's not just students, it's, it's athletes and possibly even coaches. Find a formula that works, it carries on working, and they might not consider that there are other things they could do. And those, the zonal model does help in trying to partition what works in certain areas, but also what else you can put in in others as well. And, and if you can look at it and say, well, this is my distribution, there's clearly something missing in this area that I could maybe emphasize. Um, that's obviously really helpful. Yeah, it certainly is a case where you, you, you try and look for habits that, or, or you ask someone, what, what are the sessions that you really find beneficial? What are the mm. sessions you really enjoy? And they're probably the same thing. Mm. Um, that, that they've latched on some importance, fundamental, this is a key session, or mm. this, is, this really moves me on. Mm. And it sounds a little bit of maybe superstition around it, but mm. that's often the case where um, they, they're starting to add more importance than that session actually gives it. Yeah. And, and the opposite of that, I think, has been when I've found that within, within some set training parameters, whether that is a certain distance at a certain intensity intervals, you know, with, with various rest in between. And I've given somebody a session they've never done before. And their first response is, well, how am I supposed to do that? Yeah. Uh, uh, what, what are you expecting me to do? <clears throat> and, and it's interesting. Then when you've got people thinking differently, how am I going to manage this training mm. session? For me, that's always a sign of success that yeah. you've got somebody actually engaged in their training rather than just going through the motions. Yeah. yeah. Um, as a as a useful idea. Um, look, I've got this article in front of me. You mentioned training distribution. This article in front of me, and I can only read the front page because I don't have access. But it says polarized training is not optimal for endurance athletes. So, come on. Oh yeah, I wrote that, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah, you did. Yeah. yeah. Well, discuss. So, so yeah, so this is a thing that uh, myself, Andy Jones, and Sean Bearden um, were working on during the pandemic, and it, it just so happened that, as you know, with everything that happened in the pandemic, we couldn't do any work, we couldn't do any studies, 
And what we were seeing on social media was a lot of people posting up their training because that's what a lot of people could only do. They couldn't go out and work and stuff. And so they focused on their training. And there were a lot of a lot of um, observational studies that were coming out saying, here's how the athletes do all this um, polarized training and the 80-20 rule and all these sorts of things. And certainly Andy looked at it and said, well, that doesn't really scan with some of the athletes I've worked with in the past. And Sean Bearden, who's much more on the ultra distance side, of it, said, well, all of the, the people I've either in, interacted with or coached have done a pyramidal form of training has not been polarized so the question became well what is polarized training why is it um advocated what what's the un underpinnings of it and can we be a little bit critical about that and what we essentially found was yes athletes tend to do a lot of low intensity work that's that's really irrespective of the duration of the event that they're in they will do a lot of low intensity a lot of volume at low intensities but they also do because of the sheer volume that they do they still do quite a lot at high intensities as well and it tends to be a, an inverse pyramid in other words it starts high in a zone two the heavy domain it's a bit lower a bit lower still in the severe domain so you know interval sessions they'll do a few a week they tend to be few and far between they do some sweet spot work and they do some uh and they do a lot of low intensity work in terms of the adaptive response one of the reasons for doing or for advocating polarized training is that in the heavy intensity domain you you encourage if you like autonomic dysfunction so it's a very stressful domain to be doing lots of work in and you should try and minimize that or, or reduce it to try and ward off the possibility that you end up overreaching or overtraining yeah. um that that makes sense but the evidence supporting it is actually quite weak when you look at it so the autonomic responses that have been measured have been measured using heart rate variability measures and they seem to resolve within 60 to 70 minutes of the end of a training session. The other thing is the zone three work, the interval work that's been doing has exactly the same effect on heart rate variability as the heavy work. So it's not a uniquely stressful zone to be working in necessarily. So the question then becomes why avoid it? And the, the conclusion we came to is that more work is here needed, but also that it doesn't appear to be optimal because most athletes don't do it and they do pyramidal training intensity distributions that opens up the question to me of what is the purpose of prescribing based on any training intensity distribution it's an outcome that i think has become now a target and as soon as something becomes a target it stopped being useful and so if you think about and it goes back to the way in which the intensity domains are, are partitioned in an elite athlete. You have a very, very large moderate intensity domain. If you look at the difference between a recreational athlete and uh, an elite athlete, the actual scope of the heavy domain is pretty similar. You've got about 100 watts or so yeah. for the heavy domain, and then the rest of it's severe and extreme. And so if you think about that upward shift and that kind of concertinering, if you like, in order to have a pyramidal training intensity distribution as an elite athlete if you think about if you were to randomly distribute training intensities across that range you'd end up with a polarized program because their um, heavy domain is so relatively small compared to the other two 
that you get a pyramidal, which suggests that perhaps athletes are focusing on sweet spot work more than we might think they are. And certainly when I was talking to Andy, he said, if you looked at uh, a training intensity distribution of Paula Radcliffe, it would be a very flat pyramid. I mean, maybe as much as 30 or 40% of her work would have been done in, in the heavy intensity domain doing her marathon uh, training. So it's not necessarily the case that people are doing polarized training generally. Um, that said, if you then go into a taper phase, you are going to perhaps emphasize both recovery and intensity. So you're going to you know, focus on the impulse, <laughs> but also on the recovery side. You are probably going to polarize the training anyway. So there is that shift towards polarization that will happen automatically. Again, that's essentially the buildup of good training practice that leads to that sort of distribution. So when we say polarized training is not optimal, it's not to say you shouldn't do polarized training or you shouldn't have a polarized distribution, but it's that any training distribution is an outcome of decent training structure. It's not actually, or it shouldn't necessarily be a driver of that. So it might be that somebody does have too much heavy intensity work because they got a monotonous threshold driven training program. Well, that's a training error rather than uh, if you like a, a rationalized training distribution and again I think we shouldn't be prescribing things on the training intensity distribution we should be just prescribing things on here's the event here's the athlete here's what they've been doing here's what they need next and if that ends up being pyramidal or polarized or reverse pyramidal or threshold fine if it does the job yeah. but it's not the the intensity distribution shouldn't be the thing that's prescribed. So I've se I actually seen in the literature, because they had a paper on the, the training program of the Inga Britsons. And it was, oh, well, if you look at it, it's 75% zone one, 25% zones two and three. They're not doing enough zone one as well. Yes, but they're world and Olympic champions. So they must be doing something right. Yeah. Um, and the question I would have then is if you were their coach would you say how is adding another five percent low intensity and taking off five percent of the higher intensity stuff how is that actually going to help my athlete and, in, and also how are we going to achieve that with the training sessions that we actually have so there's this you know perhaps a false notion that if you're doing 80% low intensity, that means 80% of your sessions are low intensity. No, actually, it's actually 80% of the time that you spend training will be low intensity. And you might actually have several high intensity parts of a, a training session that has mostly low intensity work in it. And the question then becomes, which bits are actually causing the adaptation? Is it all the low intensity stuff or is it the, the high intensity bits you do when you're chasing your mate up a hill kind of thing? <laughs> again i think that's an open question yeah yeah it's interesting i had this chat with stephen sailor about this around the 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 polarized categorization of training is that you've got as we sort of already talked through this massive low intensity training zone which is going to scoop up an awful mm. lot yeah yeah and so that is going to look skewed mm. um and then you're going to be doing some purposeful race preparation yeah work yeah. at, at the top um mm -hmm. and 
And so if you've got a very small zone in the middle in terms of magnitude yeah. or um, exercise intensity yeah. size, um, that is only going to capture a small yeah. amount. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a dint there where I think yeah. that differentiating the training should be the goal mm. as opposed to conforming with a certain zone balance distribution yeah yeah and also if you think about what the heavy domain entails from an athletic perspective there are actually relatively few athletic events that occur in the heavy domain exclusively we talked about marathon and half marathon yes lots of people do marathons and half marathons but if you think if you're a track athlete your event is going to be in the severe domain so if you're going to be doing event specific preparation that's going to be in the severe domain as well. You may not necessarily need to touch the heavy domain. You could be doing lots of low intensity work and then very specific high intensity work. And that will automatically result in some degree of polarization as you described. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's, so it's, it's more from the point of view that we just need to be careful a bit like the zone two wave at the moment, mm. a bit, we just need to be careful not that the, the, the tail not wagging the dog here yeah. Um, yeah. in, in terms of adopting a certain approach. And I think, mm. I think that, that idea of this is what athletes are actually doing is mm. a useful, yeah. it's a useful way of describing yeah. the, the training programs yeah. and then, and looking back at that as opposed mm. to, as we've sort of alluded to, I think a lot of the, the sort of thresholdy sweet spot mm. uh, wave of training it came for a lot from amateur you know I'm, mm. I'm working full time yeah. I'm trying to train as yeah. well and so I'm going to go out and every session is going to be hard yeah. yeah hard irrespective of whether it's supposed to be yeah uh, easy yeah. Or, or it's gonna be long hard versus mm. short hard yeah, yeah. Um, so there is that yeah there is also the the interesting question of you know, you have an athlete who's perhaps doing 700 hours of training a year. And by by its very nature, a lot of that is going to have to be of a low intensity because they would not be able to cope otherwise. I think the the other thing is, as, as we talked about the, the size of the moderate intensity domain, if you're at the upper end of the moderate domain and you are working at, say, 300 watts, the adaptive stimulus there is going to be that much more potent because we know that a lot of these adaptations of the muscle level are based upon some degree of mechanical stress. Um, and so if you're working, you know, if you've got that sheer stress in the blood vessels, that's going to be a potent stimulus for angiogenesis, for, for blood vessel development, for, for capillarization. There's going to be a lot of throughput in the mitochondria uh, in terms of you know mitochondrial uh, energetic flux, that's going to carry on promoting those things that will always adapt because you know unlike you know, there is a, you have your you can't change the size of your chest. Your heart is going to get to a certain size, and then it's going to encroach upon the lungs. So you can't necessarily you, there is going to be a genetic limit to to central cardiovascular development. There are not as far as we can tell those same sort of limits at the cellular level insofar as there's usually room to grow things in the cell and if you run out of room you can always grow more cells so it's it's that kind of difference um, in the elite versus the the sub elite is that you've got that very high uh 
moderate intensity domain, meaning that you can achieve quite a lot of adaptive response in a domain where a normal person will be exercising at such a relatively low intensity. And I think we often forget when we talk about recreational exercises who might look to the pros and say, well, I'm going to replicate that. Whenever I've done lactate threshold testing in even with sports science students, a lot of them are crossing their threshold around about the same time as they're breaking into a run. So very often you'll find lactate thresholds below eight or nine kilometers per hour in people who are not specifically trained to run. And so for that reason, doing lots of low intensity exercise would involve basically going out for a walk most of the time. And walking's great. It's fine. Uh, no problem at all. But from a, a training perspective, is that going to help you become a better runner? I'm, I'm not so sure about that. So there is a distinction to be made between those who are, you know, elite versus, you know, recreational, highly trained recreational, but also then the exercising community as well so just as as with everything else one size does not fit all in terms of how you would structure this kind of stuff yeah and I, and I tend to think that I mean you allude there to sort of the neural aspect to the differences that, that or the mechanical stress that people are going to experience at different intensities as well and that you know, I think that to be able to say, okay, that's what they're doing in cycling. So that's something I should mm. copy and paste into swimming or running doesn't work no. because of that neural aspect and mm. that you can cycle all day long. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's not that wearing it might, you might get a bit of a yeah. stiff back or yeah. shoulders, whatever yeah. it might be, but you can't go out and run all no. day. Um, yeah. it's going to, things are going to tire yeah. before the physiology does yeah whether that is um just the mechanical stress the impact yeah that, that fatigues yeah in a different way yeah it's the other interesting thing i was talking to andy about this is again when we were talking about the difference in the way in which you would structure training for a distance runner versus uh, and a cyclist in in any endurance event is just the micro bits that you often forget to think about so you can't freewheel in running, whereas in cycling, as you know, being out cycling, the, the amount of apparent recovery from a perceptual perspective you can experience just by freewheeling as you come up towards a, a roundabout or something, shake the legs out a bit and then go again. You don't have that opportunity in running most of the time. You're, you're still having to run through. Um, and and you, when you freewheel in cycling, you carry on moving. If you freewheel in one running, you basically just stop. So it's that kind of difference. Yeah, but... or, or something like uh, speed skating or mm. um, canoeing. I know mm. that their their lowest intensity has to be relatively high yeah. to get the boat moving or yeah. to, to keep the, the skates moving, to, yeah. to go at a certain speed. All the positional constraints hmm. being in a tuck position speed yeah. skating yeah. means that they're probably going to have formula mole of lactate at yeah. their lowest training yeah. intensity. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah interesting. interesting. Yeah. Hey, look, I've got one last question for you. Um, you know, when you watch mainly athletics, I think it is. And, and they're starting to talk about the lactic is starting to take a bit of a grip. Mm. Um, or um, the lactic's really starting to take its toll. Or the post race interview, and it's all lactate, lactate, lactic. Mm. What's your pernickety mind? And not that I'm saying that you're pernickety, 
but that that particular part of of uh, of your mind of knowing what's going on at the muscle and in the blood mm. um and you're thinking no oh, is the acidity a ph and inorganic yeah, yeah, ions yeah. what what's a decent alternative that they could be saying mm. um because because i kind of sympathize uh, and mm. but I also want them to get it right. <laughs> yes, yeah, so yeah. You you recently tweeted that about uh, here's here's what happened uh, to muscle fatigue uh, when then you know infused yeah. lactate. Uh, yeah. So I thought I'd ask you this mm. to see what because you are a little bit pithy on uh, <laughs> on, on Twitter, yeah, just a bit, yeah. So yeah. Um, so come on, what what is a, a constructive suggestion? What could they say? Oh, I don't really have a construct. I, I, you know, I've, as I've got older, I've actually kind of left that aside. When I was, you know, a PhD student and just started my postdoc, when I was watching athletics, I would literally want to throw a controller at the TV when somebody mentioned lactic acid. Um, so now, and then I got to a stage where I just rolled my eyes, and now I'm kind of at the acceptance stage that this probably won't change ever. Um, it's it's a difficult one because. Um, if you sat 15 physiologists in a room and asked them what the alternative <laughs> thing would be, you'd get 15 different answers, right? So it's one of those things. And, you know, if, if somebody was to say, ah, oh, well, it's inorganic phosphate, well, it might be in some cases, but if you're watching marathon coverage, it's probably glycogen depletion or something related to that in some way. Uh, it might be something related to neural activation or, or something. So, lactic acid is a very easy way of saying i'm fatigued and that's basically the colloquialism which i don't ever think is going away um so if there was an alternative i'd like them to say when the fatigue kicked in because then everybody's happy with the fact that they were tired and they're not giving a reason for the cause anymore um because as a professional educator it's actually quite nice that they keep doing it because you can then say ah is that really true and then you're telling the student okay. something, or it might be the coach or the athlete in some kind of uh, workshop thing, you're telling them something they didn't know. And people really like to feel that much smarter for the fact that they've, they've been given new information that they can then delve into. And now we have the internet with all this stuff, um, you know, relatively freely available, they can look into it for themselves. And you know, maybe what we need to do and maybe what I need to do on YouTube or something is start that as the conversation and say, okay, well, what are the alternatives? And I haven't, I don't think I've done a fatigue um, or a specific fatigue one yet. So maybe that's the next YouTube video to, uh, to say, well, you've started with lactic acid. What is it really? And then here it is in this particular case, here it is in marathon running, here it is in, you know, the the end of a tour de france stage race or prologue or whatever it is here's what's really going on and then you can make your own decision as to what you call it but i think fatigue would be the the one you'd want to go for as the catch-all term rather it's, than yeah lactic okay, so acid. it's happening yeah. yeah all right well there's there's a challenge for you you at that youtube video when it comes yeah. out is is to come up with some sort of of suggestion for the the, the yeah. commentators to come yeah. up with that's physiologically sound, but yeah. um, but but it's catchy enough. Yes, advice for commentators. Yeah, that sounds like a good <laughs> good YouTube video. <laughs> it's down to who wants it most. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. 
Look, always good to chat to you, Mark. Uh, I love the precision and clarity and the depth of thought behind your work. And it's been um, brilliant to connect today, but also no, it's been a pleasure. To, to draw on your research to, to support athletes and, yeah. and, and help them. So thanks so much for the conversation. Perfect. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen i really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation now we've got plenty more to come so if you'd like to support and champion us then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on spotify itunes stitcher youtube or wherever you tune in you can also give us a follow on twitter instagram and linkedin all the links are in the show notes so in the meantime have a great week